0: Welcome to Confronting the Madness, a podcast exploring the psychological issues of our time. My name is Mark Corthius I'm the host of Confronting the Madness. In this episode, I had the great honor of speaking with Dr. David Nutt. And before I get into David's background, it took two takes for us to record this podcast. Unfortunately, 19 minutes into the first take, I heard a loud thump at Dr. Nutt's home. Unbeknownst to me, his wife had... <laughs> had fallen down the stairs and thankfully she's okay and i'm allowed to laugh at this but we had to uh, delay the taping until the next day and thankfully he was gracious enough to oblige me the following day david is a psychiatrist and professor of neuroscience who specializes in studying the impact of drugs on the human brain in 2010 the times eureka science magazine included david in the 100 most important figures in british science and the only psychiatrist. David was famously fired as the government drug advisor for the British government in the early 2000s for stating in a research paper that alcohol and tobacco were more harmful than many illegal drugs, including LSD, ecstasy, and cannabis. David and I had a wide-ranging conversation about his career, his public dismissal as a government drug advisor, various drugs and their effects on the brain, as well as his current drug research looking at the effects of psilocybin on depression. This was the first recording I did exclusively on Zoom, so it'll be up both in audio and video. So please forgive the quality of the audio as it's been less than optimal. And now I bring to you Dr. David Nutt. <laughs> Uh, Dr. David Nutt, uh, welcome to Confronting the Madness. Thanks for joining me today. For those pleasure, uh, Good to be here. Uh, this is this is take two for those that are unaware. We had a little bit of a, uh, a, a mishap yesterday at, at the Nutt household um, with with some stairs and um, some falling. So uh, we're going to try <laughs> we're gonna try this again. Dave, Dave was gracious enough to uh, to reschedule today. For those listening in Canada, where where I am, I just wanted to give folks a bit of a background of of who you are for those who may not know you. Um, You're currently the Edmund J. Safford Professor of Neuropsychopharmacology and Director of Neuropsychopharmacology Unit, the Neuropsychopharmacology Unit in the Division of Brain Science. You're also the Deputy Head of the Center for Psychedelics Research at Imperial College. Maybe you're now the head if. your your mentor mentee is has, has gone on to, to, to San Francisco. Maybe we could talk about that. You're also the current He's chair. He's not gone yet.
1: He's not, gone He's yet. not yet. <laughs> he burns his corn before. He... <laughs>
0: <laughs> You're also currently the chair of drug science and president of the European Brain Council. In 2010, Times Eureka Science magazine included you in the top 100 most important figures in British science. And the only psychiatrist included. You've also written two books. I'm just going to show the audience uh, "Drugs Without the Hot," "Drugs Without the Hot Air," and and, an, and another book. And I'm going to tell you why I have two of these. Um, it's called "Drink?" Question mark The new science of alcohol and your health. And Dave, truth be told, I bought this one night off Amazon while having a couple glasses of wine, and I accidentally clicked two instead of one. And so when the order came and my wife said, why did you buy two? I said, I think I'm going to give one as a gift. <laughs> so you're, <laughs> you're, you. you're, you're, yeah, you're welcome. So that's one of the benefits for uh, publishers and for authors of, of drinking alcohol while purchasing books, I guess, that you didn't include in the, uh, <laughs> in, the re- in the research for, for, for um, the lay person out there. I wouldn't mind if you just, Explained what you spent your career doing, and then maybe we could we could put a pin in it at the point in which um, you got into a little bit of hot water with the British government. Um, have a little bit of a chat about that, and then talk about the back end of what you've been doing since then, if that's okay.
1: Sure. So yeah, you know, I am. Um, I've always wanted to be a scientist. But there's another book you haven't mentioned, which is my autobiography. There, not uncut. And if you really want to get into my soul, you can read that. But uh, I've always wanted to be a scientist. I went to university to do brain science, and at university I realised if I wanted to do what I wanted to do to humans, it was be better if I was a doctor, because uh, doctors are given a lot more licence than psychologists or neuroscientists. So I changed in medicine, and and then I did neurology, then I did psychiatry, and most of my career I've been doing research and I've been researching the effect of drugs on the brain uh, for two reasons. One is that uh, the brain is actually a chemical organ. There are 80 different chemicals in the brain which communicate between neurons. And the way you understand that communication is by perturbing it with, with drugs, with molecules that are like the neurotransmitters, but which change them in one way or the other, block them or stimulate them. And of course, as a psychiatrist, I prescribe drugs. So to me, you know, drugs is my, you know, drugs is me. And I, my claim to fame, I think, and no one's yet challenged me on this, is that I have probably given more different kinds of drugs to human beings than anyone certainly alive and maybe ever. Uh, and then how many, how many drugs, every, drugs would that, how many drugs would that be? System. How many different? Well, how many different, prevent- different classes of drugs? Classes of you drugs, know, yeah. About 10, about 20, about 20. I got it listed somewhere in...
0: I'll put it in my court
1: report so I have gravitas. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and and so was your interest um as a scientist was it scientific or was it did you have a specific interest in trying to figure out how to improve the lives of those that are uh mentally or neurologically ill or a combination of two the two
1: the truth is You know, I, I think I'm a, I, am am a a, science is what drove me into medicine. When I got into medicine, I did get rather addicted to the, to the power of helping people, Mm. and I think I was actually a pretty good doctor for quite a long time. But, but I was always confronted with challenges from administrators saying, "Why are you using this drug? It's expensive. Is this off license?" You know, uh, they'd always be trying to bring me back into the conventional mold, and in the end, I've given up doing clinical practice because I. I just can't be bothered to fight those battles. I'd rather carry on doing research and obviously teaching. I love
0: educating people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and do you think um, throughout your career, you've always had that libertarian, for lack of a better word, Ben, too, where you, you didn't want to conform to the norms? In- I do call it libertarian. I call it rational. I call it,
1: I'm, a I'm a rationalist. I'm not <laughs> yeah. a libertarian in that sense. I am a libertarian in the sense of my political sense, but my attitude to drugs is rational, you know, and and if there's a conflict, of course, I would tend to err on the libertarian side Mm. rather than the... And libertarian
0: is the wrong word for this context. I mean more, um, would you always not, would you always push up against administration, bureaucracy or politics even before you were the drug advisor? Was that something that's long-standing within your ethos?
1: I've always had a very very strong sense of injustice when i was 10 i started collecting when i was 10 there was a major conflict in the congo which most people have forgotten about i mean it carries on i suppose but kids were dying kids were starving and i started running uh we basically bringing by sales so that we could um fund save the children fund i've always thought it's injustice seems to me you know iniquitous you know there's injustice you should be doing something about it so mm-hmm, I've mm-hmm. always tried to do that mm-hmm. yeah I've always
0: funny thought... when I, I, I would...
1: you carry on so
0: no go ahead dude.
1: yeah um, so I, I think I've always pushed against authority at school they never made me a prefect and I was one of their most successful students when I was leaving You know, I got an open scholarship to Cambridge you know and uh, and uh, the headmaster said well we'll be glad to get rid of you nuts. And I thought, well, come on guys, yeah. all I do is ask awkward questions. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so throughout your career, obviously you progressed um, to the point where in the in the early 2000s, you became the the drug advisor to the British British government and may, maybe talk about what, what the purpose of that role was.
1: So drug policy in Britain is supposedly reviewed and made, or guidance is given to the government by a committee called the ACMD, Advisory Council on the Misuse of Drugs. And within that council, which is comprised of a whole range of people from police to judges to teachers and um, scientists, there's a subcommittee called basically the Science and Technology Committee, and I chaired that for nine years. So our job was to monitor new drugs coming along, look at the harms of old drugs, and give the, the government guidance on to whether to make a drug illegal or le- keep it legal, or even, in theory, take it out of illegality and make it legal, though that's never happened. So I was sort of overseeing the science of drug policy in Britain.
0: And and that was going along swimmingly, I suppose, for a number of years until, um, until a point in which you wrote an article about the the harms that alcohol presents that are more harmful than things like LSD or ecstasy. Is that is that an accurate summation?
1: It was never going swimmingly because it was quite clear from very early on that the policies weren't evidence based. Right. And and I always I kept they kept saying to me, yeah, but you know, we'll get it right after the next election was sorted. After the next election, they never damn well did. And uh, and also they refused to allow us to consider alcohol as a drug. Uh, But eventually I just said, look, come on, alcohol, we did did some very novel very kind of sophisticated analysis of the harms of different drugs using a a much more complicated, sophisticated scale set of scales. There are 16 ways in which drugs can harm you, nine ways harm the person and seven ways harm society. Mm -hmm. And when you look at all those harms, alcohol in Britain comes out number one, and I'm sure it would have been the same in Canada. Mm -hmm. The government didn't want to do that. They say it's not a drug, and I said, of course it's a drug. No, no, it's not in the misuse of drugs act. Well, I said that's up for us. Surely, you know, it's our committee's job to say what a drug is, not yours. Right. And eventually, they just sacked me because they got fed up with me pushing against them.
0: Mm-hmm. And um, interesting, just as a side note: in, in one of your books, you asked the question: if alcohol um, just yeah. just emerged today, would it be legal? And maybe talk about how you think about whether or not it would be legal today.
1: Well, it it certainly, uh, if it emerged today in most countries in the world that uh, apply any kind of harm assessment to drugs, it would be illegal because it's certainly more harmful than many of the drugs which are currently illegal. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in fact, we also, in a more sophisticated way, we know if it was invented as a foodstuff, today it would fail all the international and national food safety measures <laughs> so we have a we give our a very special place in our life we're completely blinkered to its harms why because we love it
0: <laughs> and, and t- tell me this i just find this story humorous and i hope you, you do now maybe you didn't then but uh jackie smith who, tell me what a home secretary is relative to what, what type of political position is that
1: so the Home Secretary would be the Secretary of State in America. I mean, the, the, whoever, the person who looks after the, the internal workings of your country.
0: I see, yeah. So she, she took great offence to the notion that you suggested, whereby there uh, there are 100 deaths per year from horseback riding versus 30 deaths per year uh, through the use of ecstasy. Yes, that's right. And that became actually... Quite, quite a scandal in and of itself,
1: is, did it not? It certainly did. It didn't do her reputation any good to get angry with me, especially when people realised that she was doing it to try to distract attention from the fact she was misleading government about where she lived and was claiming money for living somewhere she wasn't living. But anyway, that it created an enormous argument and discussion. Um, she said to me, you cannot compare horse riding, which is a legal activity, with ecstasy, which is an illegal one. And I said, well, of course you can. How can you decide if ecstasy is illegal if you don't compare the harms? And she just kept shouting at me. And, and I'm thinking, this, this doesn't make any sense at all. You know, surely there's got to be some measures that people, you know, base decisions on. And I realized then actually, afterwards, I spoke to a number of f- my friends who were in politics, and only two of them agreed with me. The rest they said, no, no, if it's illegal, it's illegal. They don't and, and this that worried me enormously. Because this idea that once you've made a decision that a drug's illegal, or once you've made a decision that someone's illegal and put them in prison, that you cannot revisit the whole justification for that. I find that really terrifying because it yeah. it, 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 it is such a source of injustice. You know, you, we, you can't put people in prison just because you don't like the name ecstasy. And they do. We Ecstasy, selling ecstasy gives you longer prison sentences in Britain than selling cocaine or crystal.
0: Wow. And, and so that was obviously a, a tumultuous period of time. Did you come out on the back end of it, though, better better for it because you stood your ground on the uh, the basis of evidence?
1: Oh, I certainly have the moral high ground. Yeah, I mean, what did I come out? Yeah, I came out of it much more famous. Mm-hmm. I came out of, out of it with a you know twenty thousand followers on Facebook and you know fifteen thousand followers on. This new thing starting at the time called Twitter. Right. I so I, I came out as a sort of um, figure of um, of opposition to government. I think it certainly spawned an enormous amount, you know, for, I was the first scientist to actually say the drug laws are rubbish. Uh, mm-hmm. it was like calling out the emperor's new clothes, you know. And there were lots of other people who said, Oh, thank goodness. Now, now we agree, yeah, we can come out because no one wanted to be the first person to say that. But it obviously it was a very stressful time. It you know, it wasted a lot of energy and um uh, but i think i think was it overall beneficial i think the answer is still things would have been different if i stayed on i might have stopped some of the more ridiculous laws that they've now brought in since but then again i might not have you know i just one of the things i discovered was that politicians don't tell the truth (laughs) now i mean you might say how god you're david you were in your 50s surely you knew that but i didn't because until you you know when you meet them they're very plausible Mm-hmm. it's only when you realize that they continue to, mis- to mislead it. so it was a kind of personal learning experience as well and uh, I think overall that it's given me through my new charity of drug science a, a much bigger reach we now have I mean people like you you know Canadians know about me you've never heard about you know never have talked to me before
0: that. <laughs> no, no yeah and so were you so after you were sacked from the position after after nut was sacked i just can't help but say that sorry um what oh, well, that's really fun i like it that was because they <laughs> say they say i resigned
1: i did not resign i refused to resign and then they wrote and said you're sacked
0: yeah. <laughs> were you doing research on um psychedelic drugs at that time i
1: wonder if they knew <laughs> we were starting we were beginning to do it yes but I don't okay. perfectly perfectly legitimately no i mean yeah, yeah one thing i was i mean i was getting a license to do it i don't think that was the issue actually the bigger issue was saying alcohol is a drug i mean that's just absolutely
0: yeah uh, but, you know, but i'm just wondering as we transition into your i guess you know next phase of your career now when did you really start to re- to to aggressively pursue um, research on psychedelics like psilocybin and uh, MDMA and the
1: likes? um, I think we wrote the first protocol in 2008, 2009. Okay. I, I think it was 2000 and yeah, late 2009, I gave the first psilocybin injection to a volunteer in a, a we had to start doing it in a, a, a mock-up scanner we weren't sure if people could tolerate the psychedelic experience in a real MRI scanner which is quite an unpleasant you know it's like being in a, mm-hmm. in a tubular metal coffin so we did it in a mock-up scanner first and and people tolerated it so
0: and and at then the we time moved. were you again this was more of a scientific endeavor um, at what point did you say wow there there might be some sort of significant benefit to those suffering from Mental
1: mental disorders. Yeah, after the, about three years later, the government and the Medical Research Council put out a call for for new approaches to depression, and we we by that point we had seen two very interesting things happen in our we'd done two psilocybin imaging studies by then, and they both come up with the same outcome that um, that psilocybin, which is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms. Would disrupt the brain circuits, which we knew from other people's research. I wasn't really worse at working on depression than I was working in addiction. But we, I'd known that, or I knew enough about depression to know that, that this was an interesting finding. It was disrupting the brain circuits of depression. But also, people coming out in the scanner, you give someone magic mushrooms in a scanner, you wouldn't expect them to have any real benefit. But they often came out and said, wow, you know, that was interesting. And I feel better. And I feel more in tune with the world, more in touch. We thought maybe that's an antidepressant effect, mm-hmm. and also the Johns Hopkins group had also done some work in um, healthy volunteers showing uh, increased wellness after psilocybin, the same doses we use. So we thought, Oh, let's give it a go, let's write a grant. There's a chance we might get funding. Up to that point, our funding had been from charities. Since that point, our funding's been from charities, but at one point, we got money from the government to study depression. Oh, wow, and it works,
0: <laughs> and, and so. How, how maybe talk through how you your research is showing it, it does work. And, you know, I, part of the there's a jam article that you and uh, Robert Carhart Harris wrote, and I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna read it, because I find it very fascinating. Um, and it, it asks the questions, why might psychedelics work in such a wide range of disorders? And yeah. you write we might suggest this, maybe because these conditions are all internalizing disorders. So maybe describe what an internalizing disorder is. And then how you suggest that uh, psychedelics work on the brain to um, affect the the internalization.
1: Yes, so let's start, take depression. Um, In depression, what we know now from other people's work, neuroimaging work, is that the brain circuits that make you think about yourself are, are basically exaggerated. And that fits with what goes on in the depressed mind. Depressed people continually rehearse, repeat, ruminate on things they have done wrong. They continually cogitate about mistakes they've made, people they've upset, errors they've made, et cetera, guilty feeling. And that's what we call internalizing. They're thinking about themselves, but in an an inappropriate way. They're obviously not guilty mostly, but they think they are. Now, if you take addiction, the process is similar. People are thinking about, you know, the needles or the bottle or the rocks, and they know they don't want to. They want to escape from that, but they can't. Their mind gets locked into this repetitive thinking. And we believe that psychedelics can disrupt the processes which lock you into this, this um, tramline thinking.
0: And, and why? Like, so if you take cognitive behavioral therapy, for example, which... Um, effectively is trying to do the same mechanism through talk therapy, right? Is disrupt negative thoughts, emotions. Um, Why is, just from a a neuroscience perspective, what is a psychedelic doing that's so different from simply cognitive behavioral therapy? Do we know?
1: Well, that's a really good question. And the answer is yes, we do know. And I can answer it in two ways. So I'll start off by answering it using the voices of our patients. Because in our first depression trial, we treated people with resistant depression. They had all had CBT, and it had not worked in any of them. So afterwards, when most of them got better after psilocybin, we said, tell us the difference between what psilocybin is doing and what CBT is doing. And they said, CBT is like this. CBT is like going to school. The teacher tells you to do this. It's difficult to do because you're depressed. And if you don't do it, you're a failure. Mm -hmm. And that makes you more depressed. And psychedelics, they stop you being depressed. They reset your brain. They defragment your hard drive. They reset, you know, they reformat your computer. They reformat your brain. So that's how they say so subjectively fundamentally different experiences uh, and then what, what's the neuroscience of that well the neuroscience is again very straightforward cbt is using very high frontal regions reason cbt says you think you're depressed but you're not look at the evidence you're not depressed you know are you you know no. what's the evidence you're depressed what's the evidence you're a bad person you got, so you've got to do work you've got to keep building up these prefrontal high level cognitive processes to kind of balance or shut down negative thoughts whereas psychedelics they just disrupt the negative thoughts right and uh, and so you don't have negative thoughts. so you don't you know basically you know they kind of you purge your system of the negative thoughts and that's uh, that also happens in the cortex but it happens because you disrupt the thinking processes whereas cbt is always about controlling it doesn't get rid of the thinking it just tries to overlay a different kind of thinking and that in itself is is actually hard work and and you're never free. I mean, people who, you know, do, and CBT is is effective for quite a few people, mm-hmm. but but they're always working at it. It's not that, you know, you, it's a kind of, you know, you've got to keep doing it to keep the other negative thoughts at bay.
0: Right. And here, This might be a, a stupid follow-on question, but it makes me wonder <clears throat> why then, if psychedelics disrupt your negative emotions, does that then default your brain to having positive emotion like or
1: like yeah it's a great question i mean actually i think you're touching to my mind the fundamental question that i'm going to wrestle with over the next year or two is working out what is the difference between a negative thought and a positive thought ah. why can one of them be disrupted and the and i think that's a really really interesting question yeah now empirically we have a little bit of data we know that if you suck serotonin out of the brain people tend to think more negatively so it, at, at one level it might it might be a very simple sort of chemical disturbance but mm-hmm. that, that isn't quite that isn't ever going to be a satisfactory answer because mm-hmm. you know they must they must there must be a switch in the brain somewhere because mm-hmm. we know that because we know after you know we cured people of depression but the depression came back mm-hmm. so you, even even psychedelics don't get from for some people, don't get rid of the negative thoughts. They're embedded. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're kind of deep inside you, like a serpent that you compress, and it kind of fights its way back over over months or years. And what that process is, I, I really, you know, we don't we we have very little understanding of it.
0: Mm. But we need yeah, to. That, that, that's that, yeah, really interesting. Just speaking of serotonin, maybe could we talk a little bit about antidepressants? So let's take a, a SSRI for example. Um, if you could just help explain to folks, because you can do a better job than I'm, what that is and why that's different um, mm. than a psychedelic in terms of the the action on the brain, and which ones which ones better, or do we do we know and will? Sorry, I, I do this sometimes. I Ask ten questions in one question. Um, Is there a future in which a psychedelic treatment will replace SSRI in the treatment pathways?
1: Okay, so let's start with the easy one. What's an SSRI? It stands for selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. It's a molecule that sits in the uptake site that sucks serotonin back into the neurons that make it So it increases serotonin in the synapse and increases activity of serotonin on serotonin receptors. Now now there are multiple genes which code for serotonin receptors, and there are at least 14 subtypes of serotonin receptors in the brain. So when you increase serotonin, you theoretically stimulate all those receptors, but it turns out there's one particular one called the serotonin 1A receptor, that is particularly sensitive to that increase in serotonin produced by an SSRI. And that receptor is a very interesting receptor because it is in the emotional circuits of the brain. So, so what? And it's an inhibitory receptor, it dampens down the brain. So the reason SSRIs work is because they dampen down your emotions and they dampen down um, stress reactivity. Now we all know that stress is a major factor in depression. And in fact, if we look at the brains of people who are depressed, they are super sensitive to stress. We can measure that. We can put them in a brain scanner. We can look at the stress center in the brain called the amygdala. We can show them a a face of someone who's frightened, and their amygdala lights up more than your amygdala. If anyone's amygdala would light up if, if they see something frightening, but theirs lights up more, they're super sensitive. And what SSRIs do is they dampen that down. And the reason they take three, six, eight weeks to work is because the the recovery of the brain is determined by the fact that you've stopped the stress and the brain then heals itself. So they don't directly get you over depression. They let you heal. Now, psychedelics work on a different sort of receptor, the serotonin 2A receptor, which is in the cortex, a completely different part of the brain. And they lift depression through the mechanisms I've already explained. They disrupt depressive thinking. So they actually kind of basically destroy depressive thinking whereas ssris allow you to slowly stop being depressed as your brain heals from the um the consequences of stress
0: and so why do ssris not work on such a large percentage of individuals from from a from a brain science perspective why are they ineffective we we don't know
1: know. we don't absolutely have very little idea as to why they don't work um they actually they, there are two roles for SSRIs one is to lift you from depression uh where maybe so yeah I mean maybe half of people get a goodish response but but there's there's another role which is somewhat they're somewhat better at and that is protecting you against the next bout of depression and this is where this concept that their anti-stress comes in that they actually do seem to kind of give the brain a little bit of security so that the miseries of life don't have such a negative impact on your brain. And there they have a stronger effect. And there, and there they can actually be quite useful in, in quite a significant proportion of people once they're yeah. stabilized.
0: Yeah. And you are doing a study right now looking at the versus psilocybin. So escitalopram being an antidepressant. Is that in the works as we speak? Talk a little bit about how you're uh, measuring that.
1: So we have done the first head-to-head. We've taken psilocybin, two doses, 25 milligrams on day one, 25 milligrams three weeks later. And we've taken escitalopram, an SSRI, the best SSRI, certainly the most uh, selective. And we've given it a decent dose, 10 milligrams for three weeks, 20 milligrams for three weeks. Uh, and we've compared the outcome. Uh, and by the way, everyone got psilocybin to start with. Some got a big dose, some got a little dose. So uh it was cleverly uh, designed so that people everyone had a, a the same kind of psychological intervention they had the, all had psilocybin twice um and uh and then we're looking at 6 weeks as to what um, what the outcomes are and that paper is coming out uh in 2 weeks time so oh, it is. what is what's this space I'm not allowed uh, to tell you it's in an embargo the journal is a is the it's a very important medical journal new england journal of medicine they insist that we have to keep the embargo but Journalists can send me questions from, I think, probably next Tuesday.
0: Uh, okay. Well, I'm not a journalist, but I'm going to pretend I'll be one for this purpose because I find that fa- a fascinating um, research study. Um, so, looking ahead, I mean, there's been this. Do you think that there's so there's been billions of dollars now invested into um, yes. psychedelic companies, and in many ways, you know, I wonder if this is a threat to the pharmaceutical industry. You know, if we look at things like SSRIs, for example, um, benzodiazepines, it's 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 a it's a billion dollar revenue line for these companies. Um and when we look Mark, at the not, any, not, not anymore, Mark. No, not anymore. The, it's less I,
1: don't than believe, that. Oh, I, mean, I this is the big problem. Most only two, there's I don't think there's two companies left that are actually making any money out of antidepressants that is Lundbeck through Vortioxetine, which is virtually off license, and possibly I don't know if they're making any money, but Janssen, who are developing S ketamine, all the other companies have washed their hands of it. And actually, I I don't think they're threatened by us, I think they're just grateful that we're taking the heat off them because otherwise, people are saying, Why the hell aren't you doing something about them?
0: Ah, I see. Okay so you don't you my my question um, around a threat they're not threatened at at all. I mean they haven't innovated a new um, medication for 30 or 40 50 years and they they're not really investing r&d into the space at all either are they?
1: Almost none of them are. The um, the threat to them actually is the ones that want to stay in this field is how they can get into this field right 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 because they need to because all their other drugs are off patent and and it's a no one knows yeah you said okay there's there's an explosion there must be 30 psychedelic companies now wanting to sell psilocybin or mushrooms or dmt or something but no one knows how you're going to, how it's going to work. And no one knows how you're going to actually get health authorities to pay for it, how you're going to roll it out. So it's, a, it's it was in a, in a state of considerable uncertainty at present. And so I wouldn't invest all your money in psychedelic medicine.
0: <laughs> right. right. Yeah, I know. Well, it's, it's much like, well, I don't know. It's like the cannabis gold rush, you know, where a lot of people got yes. wrecked, you know, from a, yes, from yes, an investment exactly. perspective. Um, yes. And now, uh, you know, a interesting question for you, I guess, around psychiatry as well, um, because I, I was obviously involved as a funder um, in the mental health landscape in Alberta, and I've been amazed at psychiatrists whom have never mentioned once to me about psychedelics in five years, all of a sudden, like 20 people saying, I'm going to spend the rest of my career focusing on this. and make a little bit about the state of psychiatry and as it pertains to psychedelics. And if you think they're um, all for it, um, half and half or because I remember, I think in Australia when they were looking to pass um, some sort of um, protocol for medicalization the, the psych, the psychiatric association wrote a, a fairly damning, poorly written letter. Um, advocating against it. So, uh, how do you see that from your your psych, psych, psychiatrist's hat?
1: Well, what what what, what it sort of makes me? Why am I a psychiatrist? Psychiatry, as a profession, is is way the most complex and interesting profession. Yeah. You have got people like me who are biologists. You have got people who are psychotherapists. You have got people in between. It covers just almost every kind of approach there's ever been to to the brain that's the first thing the second thing is that um it also is a it's a profession which has made little progress you pointed out what innovation has there been mm-hmm. in anything we've done in the last the drugs we use today were all discovered for other purposes 50 years ago yeah yeah so so there are so there are psychiatrists I think, are desperate for something new and innovative, particularly young psychiatrists, because young you know, the need is greater than ever after COVID. But they're just saying, "This is, we've just got these protocols, we're giving the same old medicines, and we're not actually using our brains. We're just prescribing. Now, the really exciting thing about psychedelic psychiatry is that it brings together a drug and psychotherapy because uh-huh. we believe it together that, so this is, this is complete, this is, this is the revolution in psychiatry, and I think young psychiatrists are thrilled that they can do, be both kinds of psychiatrists at once, and uh, and I'm very excited about that, but of course there are a lot of middle-aged and older psychiatrists who are, um, who've been telling everyone how dangerous these drugs are for decades when they do the drug addiction courses, and, and for them it's going to be difficult to change, uh-huh. but I just, I want to tell you a very amusing anecdote, so about two yeah, years please. ago, I was asked to give a Lecture to the royal college of psychiatrists they just opened their new building in london and it was a fantastic i think 400 people there and i gave the psychedelics future of psychiatry lecture and afterwards you know there were three clearly three separate groups thought groups in the room the first there were about 12 old men um, older than me who said good on ya." We were there when we were giving it in the 1960s, when it was legal. It was bloody good. Thank goodness I'm seeing it coming back before I die. And then there was the sort of 250 in the middle saying, these are dangerous drugs and, you know, we're not going to break the law, blah, blah, blah. And then there were about a 50, 70 young psychiatrists, and they said, hallelujah, you know, can I come and work for you? And, in fact, quite a few of them are now. Yeah.
0: So... <laughs> And that was two years ago. I imagine if you gave that presentation today, everybody would want to come and work for you because... <laughs>
1: uh, uh, yeah, well, I mean, it's, look, I think we've got to be a bit careful, Mark. I keep telling on my team, look, just because there isn't public opposition doesn't mean that there's not subconscious or even, you know, just deliberately quiet. I don't think we've won the argument yet. We have got to, mustn't be complacent. I think we've got to keep pushing, pushing for the science, pushing for... Because, you know, look, I have fought for 10 years to get medical cannabis in illegal in Britain and we've hardly achieved it. And mm-hmm. I I spent 10 days in court in South Africa 2 years ago trying to get cannabis as a medicine. And I was opposed by groups which are fu- largely funded by rich American philanthropists who are puritans who believe that every drug is evil. Mm-hmm. And they've got a lot of money. They could they could afford to pay QCs to attack to attack me for ten days, you know. So, mm-hmm. so there's an opposition out there. They're not saying much at present, but one thing's for sure, they haven't rolled over. So, they'll,
0: yeah, they'll... yeah. I'd like to maybe transition to the just the political landscape as well. Like in Alberta, here, for example, we have a, a conservative party, and um, they're we haven't. They did. They did appoint an associate minister for addiction and mental health and their focus is all on recovery. And there's been a big battle in Alberta about the previous government really implemented a lot of harm reduction, and now they're rolling all that back. And what, I, what I'm what i curious about from your perspective, and I, th- I find this very, very humorous. Um, so the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, um, I think in part- Bill was, Wilson. Bill Wilson uh, was cured due to an LSD trip, um, not cured, but he is, is and so, 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 if. if, he, was if, if he, was, he was cured. He was cured to trip. psychedelic trip. Okay. So he, Bill Wilson, he the founder cured. of alcohol. He was cured. Cured. Yes. But are. In the sense, think,
1: in the sense that he didn't drink again till he died. If that's what you mean by cure.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Thank you. But I guess my question is, you know, when, when you think about a harm reduction, do you think that psychedelics fits within the, the recovery versus harm reduction battle? Because it's not as though it's an addictive drug, right? And that's what, there's a, there's a, there's a differentiating factor there. Do you, do you think? That is a fundamental
1: question, Mark. Great question. Absolutely, this is again We can reconcile the two sides of psychiatry, the therapists and the, the prescribers. We can reconcile the two sides of addiction. Because these drugs potentially do allow people to recover. Uh, Nothing else does, that's a fact. But these could, they can can essentially remodel your brain so that you are no longer craving, so that you're no longer vulnerable to the impulses which make you relapse. Then they could be really an important part of recovery. I mean, I'm very, the the current recovery agenda we have, we have it in Britain too, is is actually completely dishonest. It's basically saying we're. we detoxify you for six weeks then you're on your own it's not recovery yeah. at all basically it's just you out of hospital but a proper recovery agenda i think psychedelics could
0: be a really have a very significant role there yeah yeah okay and you think that the recovery movement will support will, will be supportive of that
1: well let's go back to alcoholics anonymous what happened what? You know, Bill Wilson set up Alcoholics Anonymous because he was cured. He was recovered from a psychedelic. He funded, he got the American government to fund six trials of LSD, one or two doses in alcoholism before 1967. The net effect of LSD in alcoholism is bigger, it's twice as big as any other treatment there has ever been in alcoholism. Uh But as soon as it was made illegal, what happened? Alcoholics Anonymous split. The Majority said, no, no, we mustn't break the law. So we're gonna deny access. We're not gonna campaign. We're just gonna, you guys are just gonna, you know, you gotta, it's gotta be all inside your brain. No. And then other, others went off and did underground therapy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the answer is history tells us we know the solution. We just yes. gotta get the recovery people to learn history and to realize, you know, that this is
0: a phenomenal opportunity for them. Do you think um From a political perspective, like I look in Canada, so we have a liberal government and Justin Trudeau now, um, you know, we have a conservative opposition and there may be an election. And I'm wondering, I guess my question is in 2021. Now, I think COVID has also really transformed the way in which individuals look at um, society and how, how we should function as human beings. I guess humanity generally Do you think that there's no turning back in terms of psychedelics becoming um, a a treatment modality in the public domain? Or what are some of the major risks? Is it political? Is it the research doesn't bear out the evidence in large scale? What big risk do you see in the horizon in the futures?
1: Yeah, well, Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> quite a few, I can say. Okay, so let's just look at the ones you highlighted. Suppose the big COMPASS trial, the big trial that's going on at present is a three-arm trial, COMPASS pathways, 25 milligram dose, our dose, a 10 milligram dose and a one milligram dose. Conventional trial, three arms, one dose. What's going to happen? Well, I'm pretty confident that the 25 milligram dose will work and the one milligram dose won't work. If the But the 10 milligram dose... You know it might work a little bit it might work it might be better than the one then the regulators might say well we don't need the 25 you know they, they might start saying well you're going to use the minimum dose if it's so that so that's that's the first risk the uh, second risk of course is that the 25 milligram dose doesn't work in which case we're in serious stook um, <laughs> the, the third issue and this is a, you know in a, a kind of very different issue is you know inevitably some people will have problems you know there's bound to be a suicide in the group that are getting psilocybin, and then I, I can almost see they've probably got the headlines written in the newspapers already. Mushrooms kill a man. Let's ban them again. You know, so so that the anti-drug brigade, you know, they will they will always come back because you know it's, for them it's a moral position. They don't care about science. They just they just think drugs are bad. So the, so that there is a big issue, particularly if we start to say that uh, you know they we can use them for disorders where they, there's really no indication at all. So widespread use in, in in disorders, say like personality disorder, which we have some evidence already, does badly on these. We don't, you know, that's just going to create much more problems. You know, and um, and then of course you've got the whole issue and uh, and you know the unspoken fear that they'll become recreational as opposed to medical, and will that change the world? And the answer is probably not, but but <laughs> there will be people who will argue that it will, and who will then use that. To try to stop the broadening of it, and maybe even to suppress it at all. So let let's be clear. You know, I mean, medical cannabis legal in forty countries, psilocybin as a medicine legal in three, and ayahuasca maybe another six. So two hundred and twenty-seven countries in the UN. We've got a long way to go with cannabis. We've got even further to go with psychedelics. So you know, let's not let's not get
0: complacent yet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that's, and I I, I would agree with you one hundred percent. That's hardening, and I not that I, I don't like the language around a mental health tsunami or men, like you know there's a lot of hyperbole around what COVID's done for um, mental health. I think there's been a lot of distress, but I think we're much more resilient as a as a species than than some of the the marketing language that's put out there. But I I do think that you know COVID has probably shone a light on how important. Mental well-being is, and I think that aligns well with um, the billions of dollars of investments that are being made in psychedelic companies. But I am curious to see how uh, politicians respond to some of this, and I guess hopefully that the research that, that we that we follow the evidence. Um, but well, I
1: hope for, I mean I don't know what's happening in Canada. I am pretty disillusioned. A year ago, literally a year ago, this month, I wrote a paper saying the pro COVID will be resolved probably within 18 months. The problem then will be the consequences of COVID, which will be long COVID and the psychological consequences of, of being particularly to the medical profession of being completely ill equipped for something that you should have been equipped for. Right. We've Got seven government committees looking at how to stop the fucking virus. We haven't got a single government committee dealing with the psychological consequences Mm -hmm. a year Mm -hmm. on. I mean, it's, so I don't know if you're doing it. The only country I know that's actually got a systematic program of, of mental rehabilitation, Spain, interestingly. Hmm. So it is, yeah. you know, look, mental illness has always been, you know, alongside venereal disease, it's always been, you know, the orphan in terms of funding. Mm-hmm. And, uh, mm-hmm. and I, yes, that, that isn't changing. It should change. But, you know, you're talking, you're working against, you know, basically sy- systemic stigma that's been there really, well, ever since we started caring about health, you know, the heart's much more important than the brain to move people. Mm -hmm. Well
0: I I know I know you gotta go in a a couple of minutes, but now you've you've triggered me to talk about something that um bothers me a great deal in that you know we've spent 20 years on this anti-stigma campaign um you know trying to allow an individual the space to say you know what maybe I need some sort of help right Mm -hmm. Uh, particularly men and Mm. now that that person goes you know what i actually need i need some help um there's nowhere to get it and so we've set people up in large part for failure through an anti-stigma campaign which had good intentions but it's having terrible outcomes and now governments who are professing that they support mental health are not backing up backing it up either with Financial resources and/or redesigning a system that was made as an asylum system. It's never, it's never been redesigned, and it bothers me a great deal. Well, it, absolutely,
1: but of course, the cheapest kind of healthcare in the world is is to tell people to talk about their problems but do nothing about it. I mean, it's and and it, I would say that is just a manifestation of the stigma. That all you've got to do is talk about it, and it'll go away. I mean, it, it's just it's the same as you know Nancy Reagan. Just say no drug problem mm-hmm. solved, just say, I mean, it's, this infantile kind of, uh, approaches, but that, you know, politicians spew them out, and, and the gullible members of the public think, oh, great, that's wonderful, but they don't follow through, and we have to hold them to account, mm-hmm. absolutely, mm-hmm. but the only way we hold them account is through the, through voters, through, you know, through the ballot yes. box, and, yes,
0: yes. I, I, I well, let's, let's, of- let's not get our collective blood pressures too high here, let's end on a, on a on a lighter note, and, and this is actually how I first became aware of you. And this is, I don't know, this is maybe four or five years ago, where a mutual colleague and he may be he's a friend and mentor of mine, Dr. Andy Greenshaw, had told me about you because he said there was a guy in Britain who was creating a synthetic alcohol. Mm-hmm, and he yes. sent me the article that was in one of your newspapers, and it was called ElkoSynth. And I said to Andy, I said, okay. You've got to tell that guy. He's got to ship me up a box. <laughs> Toot sweet, okay? And then, obviously, it was harder than that. But maybe just talk. Tell tell people what you're working on, because I I just find that um, I find that fascinating. I'm sure others will too. So, every
1: doctor from the day they start on the ward as a medical student, every day, every doctor meets an alcohol problem. And. Uh, because I'm interested in alcohol as a drug, I have spent most of my life trying to find ways of helping people deal with alcohol, get withdrawn from alcohol, stop craving for alcohol. And uh, in my PhD back in 19, 1979, I discovered an antidote. I could get a rat intoxicated on alcohol and I could sober him up. And I went to my boss, my professor, and I said, I've got an alcohol antidote. And he said, what's the use of that? And I said, uh, uh you could drive home safely he said yeah but it'll still rot your liver uh okay I thought well maybe he's right and then about 15 years ago I was when I was um in favor with the government I led their foresight program which was a 25-year view of the future of drugs and, and and brain science and during that we had a year of sort of brainstorming and I thought we can never get rid of the harms of alcohol. I mean, it's a toxin. You rub it on the skin to kill bugs, it kills you inside because, you know, it kills your cells <laughs> as well as bugs. So I thought maybe the answer is to replace it. And I thought, let's see, can we get can neuroscience tell us enough to replace it? And the answer is yes. Over the last 15 years, I've been partly working on this question of what's the neuroscience of alcohol? What's the neuroscience of the good effects versus the bad effects? And uh, can we f- mimic the good effects without the bad effects? And the answer is yes we can do that now. And we're in the process of putting our, our lead comp, we've made compounds, new compounds, which we can patent, and which we are now in the process of taking through toxicology testing to get them out as a food, because alcohol is a food.
0: And so I'm just gonna finish with this. Um, I started with saying, I bought two of your books because I had one too many glasses of wine. And so as as a favor, you know, when it's when it's legal and able to be distributed, I'll send you my address so that uh, I can I can start helping market it here in, in Canada. Mark, for you. but,
1: Mark, but we, one thing I haven't told you, which you may not know, is that because the uh, it's going to take three, four years going through all the food safety testing with the synthetic. We have made a botanical. We've hmm. made a botanical drink called Sentia Spirits, uh, which is food grade botanicals. Which are completely legal because uh, they're food grade, and in fact, I will send you a bottle. Oh, it's it's we launched it in January. Every we've had three productions; they've all been sold out before we've made them, and it's uh, it's going really well. And so we're very excited by this. So, uh, give, send me your full address, and I will have a bottle of your Spirit sent to you. All right?
0: Oh, thank you, thank you so much, my friend. And I know you got to go at nine. It's been an absolute honor and pleasure talking to you, and I hope we can keep in touch. Um, and, and take care of yourself. Choice. Take care of your take care of your wife for me, okay? Thank you very much, Mark. Yeah, and if you, and
1: if you like the spirits, then you can. I'm very happy for you to market it for us in Canada. All right?
0: Okay, sounds. I'll just take. I do usually do a 25 percent, 25 percent cut from. It, oh, so I'm not fine. a
1: businessman. That sounds fine to me, but you'll have to negotiate <laughs> with my colleagues. <laughs> take care, Mark.
0: Cheers. Great to talk. Bye. Bye.